Welcome to Side Streets, a podcast about the history and geography of London. I'm Alan Hertz, Professor Emeritus of Humanities at Holt International Business School. Despite my accent, I've been prowling London and learning about its past for over 40 years. Side Streets is a Black Lab media production, and my producer and editor is Wilhelm Schenk. Our first few episodes this season are set in the area around Whitecross Street, just to the north of the City of London. Last time I toured it from south to north, visiting the sites of seven cemeteries and in alleyway five, a memorial garden. I reintroduced the idea of edginess and celebrated the remarkable religious and cultural diversity which has marked London since Roman times. I also meditated on the different ways in which Londoners have treated their dead and brooded on the symbolic geography of graveyards. I apologize for the gloom. This episode will be less morbid. I will consider the role Whitecross Street has played in what are now called the creative industries. The neighborhood has long been a place where literature and the performing arts have been produced and enjoyed, where writers, actors, and musicians have learned and practiced their crafts, where important cultural institutions have developed and alternative, even subversive artistic practices have survived and occasionally thrived. Before we get to the anecdotal circumstantial history I enjoy, let me make myself uncomfortable with some big questionable generalizations about the creative industries in London and their evolution since Shakespeare's time. And let me get my most tendentious claim out of the way first. In this aspect of cultural life, The very dubious notion of English liberty, the idea that early modern Britain was somehow freer than its continental neighbors and rivals, has some value. Dramatic and musical performance, literature and journalism, political, religious, and cultural commentary were for a long time more autonomous here, less closely controlled by the state, less determined by court and aristocratic patronage than they were in France or Spain. Audiences, producers, and subjects were more varied, the range of acceptable language and content wider, the results more diverse, and in many ways more controversial than they were across the channel. Some important qualifications. This claim might be tenable from, say, 1550 to 1850, but by 1900, it is completely absurd. Vienna and Paris, in the time of Freud and Picasso, are at least as free and controversial as London. And in any case, this relative freedom can be exaggerated, and the Roaring Girl, after whom this episode is named, illustrates its limits as well as its extent. Another general point. The role of the creative industries in London is often embodied in their location, and a change in that role often leads to a change in that location. The earliest playhouses, for example, were literally edgy. They were found in Shoreditch or Mile End or Bankside, outside the jurisdiction of city authorities. But after the Restoration in 1660, when playgoing became fashionable, they reappeared around Covent Garden, the central, swinging London of the time. Nowadays, we have both mainstream theater at the center of town and edgier stuff. We significantly call it fringe theater at the margins. Whitecross Street plays an interesting role in this. When it was on the edge of town, the Fortune, one of London's first playhouses, was here. And as we will see, this was an institution which took some risks. 
Now that London's expansion has made the neighborhood more central, it is the home of the Barbican Arts Center, where audiences can hear the London Symphony Orchestra and see the Royal Shakespeare Company. You don't get more mainstream than that. Another important dimension of the development of creative industries in London is their professionalization. Shakespeare and his contemporaries were masterless men. Their industry existed in a legal limbo outside the guild system. But after the restoration fully legitimized theater, formal education and career structures began to appear. Again, one of the first indications of this is on Whitecross Street, where Thomas Killigrew, officially licensed by the Crown to produce plays, founded a drama school. Here is John Dryden's description of the place. A nursery erects its head, where queens are formed and future heroes bred, where unfledged actors learn to laugh and cry, where infant punks their tender voices try, and little maximins the gods defy. This 17th century experiment has a couple of modern descendants in the area. The Guildhall School of Music and Drama now occupies much of the southern part of our neighborhood, and the renovated St. Luke's at its northern edge serves as the rehearsal hall and education center for the London Symphony Orchestra. One last general observation. The creative industries can function both as supporters of the status quo and as subversives. Sometimes the same artist or institution or work can do both. In London, cultural institutions licensed, patronized, financially supported by the powers that be, produced work which seems profoundly critical of them. Biting the feeding hand has long been an important part of our artistic culture. This tension, I think, gives Shakespeare's history plays much of their appeal. As we will see, Whitecross Street gives us several examples of this interesting complexity. Enough abstraction. Let's come back down to earth at the corner of Whitecross and Fortune Streets. A plaque marks this as the location of the Fortune Theater. More is known about this playhouse than any other in Elizabethan and Jacobean London. It was built in response to the construction of the globe on Bankside which seems to have made the nearby Rose Theater seem obsolete and unattractive. According to guides at the rebuilt globe, Juliet's, a rose by other name would smell as sweet, may have been a dig at the poor drainage of a rival theater. So Philip Henslow and Edward Allen, proprietors of the Rose, decided to move north. They took a 25-year lease on open fields between Whitecross Street and Golden Lane overcame local objections by promising to give a share of their takings to the parish and commissioned Peter Street, who had constructed the globe, to create another playhouse. This one was square, not round, but was similarly designed. A stage 27 feet deep, thrusting into a central yard with rooms for props and costume changes behind and three galleries of seating occupying the other three sides. The playhouse could accommodate about 3,000 spectators when full. The fortune opened in the autumn of 1600. The resident company was the Lord Admiral's men, whose patron was Charles Howard, Earl of Nottingham, Lord High Admiral of England. After Queen Elizabeth died in 1603, they became Prince Henry's men. Their new patron was James I's son, the Prince of Wales. Like Shakespeare's king's men, this company performed regularly at court. 
So far, so impressive, but that is only part of the story. The fortune quickly developed a reputation for, well, edginess. A noisy, lower-class clientele described by one observer as apple wives and chimney boys, recurrent violence in the audience as well as on stage, an unpopular astrologer was chased into the city and beaten to death, scripts which occasionally seemed outrageously obscene. A bit of contemporary poetry sums things up. The stinkards oft will hiss without a cause, and for a bawdy jest will give applause. Let one but ask the reason why they roar, they'll answer, because the rest did so before. The playhouse burned down in 1622 and was rebuilt in brick, but the loss of scripts and costumes was a greater disaster than the loss of the building. The resident company left, and although performances continued, the fortune seems to have fallen out of fashion. It was closed, like all London's theaters, in 1642 when a Puritan regime took control of the capital at the start of the Civil War. But, and this seems entirely characteristic of the place, illegal performances continued there until 1649 when the authorities wrecked the interior to render it unusable. I want to discuss a single episode in a bit more detail. In the spring of 1611, a play by Thomas Middleton and Thomas Decker was performed at The Fortune. The two Thomases were well-established, well-known playwrights who had collaborated several times in the past. They specialized in city comedies, that is, comic plays set in contemporary London with characters who were recognizable London types. Their offering this time was The Roaring Girl, or Mall Cutpurse, and one feature of this play was utterly unprecedented. The title character was not merely a type. She was a real person, and Mull was not only real, she was a regular in the Fortune audience, and may, the authorities differ about this, have already performed on the stage there. Mull's real name was Mary Frith. She was a local girl born in the Barbican in 1584 or 85, before she was out of her teens, she was making a name for herself as a street criminal. At some point, she began dressing in men's clothes, wearing riding boots, even carrying a sword. She didn't merely dress like a man, she also spoke and behaved like one, swearing, brawling, smoking, visiting taverns, betting on cockfights. She became a true celebrity, likely to draw a crowd and even cause a riot when she appeared in public. In one infamous episode, she accepted a 20-pound bet that she could ride from Charing Cross to Shoreditch dressed as a man. She not only won the bet, she rode a performing horse and did tricks along the way, but she also had to hide from a hostile mob in Holborn. By 1611, she'd been branded as a thief and had been to prison, but she was also famous. Books had been written about her mad pranks. In Middleton's and Decker's play, Maul is certainly a bit of a prankster. In a scene where she has a tailor maker a pair of breeches, she easily triumphs in a battle of obscenities. But in this play, everyone is playing tricks. One character pretends to be in love with Maul so that his father will allow him to marry the woman he really wants. Another tries to entrap Maul, whose nickname, Maul Cutpurse, is an index of her reputation as a thief, by leaving valuable goods lying around. Maul meets every challenge. She helps the course of true love run more smoothly. 
She does not steal the goods put out to tempt her. In fact, she warns the owner of their vulnerability by the standards of the devious, riotous society presented on stage. She is a model of decency and social responsibility. She may dress like a man, she may behave like a man, but she is straightforward, honest, and kind. Thanks to her, this part of London, as this month's alleyway will show, the play is clearly set around Whitecross Street, is a safer, more secure, happier place. This is worth a moment of our attention for a couple of reasons. One is that the real mall spent much of her life condemned by London's civic and religious authorities. She was imprisoned, fined, branded, forced to do public penance at Paul's Cross. They saw her as a threat to public order, but the play presents her as a benevolent eccentric, superficially outrageous, but very much a force for good. Another point is that the audience knew her, The other characters in the play are stereotypes, but Mull was the stinkard's notorious neighbor. If they had disapproved of or feared her, Middleton and Decker would surely have presented her differently. This becomes clear in the epilogue, when the actor playing Mull invites the audience back to the fortune to see the real Mull perform. This performance did indeed happen the only occasion we know of when a woman performed on a pre-restoration London stage and had got Maul arrested and arraigned yet again. In this episode, the fortune certainly lived up to its edgy reputation, but it also embodied and celebrated a lively, tolerant urban counterculture. But that does not capture the full complexity of this moment. This theater company was sponsored by the Prince of Wales. A few years before, the same playwrights, Middleton and Decker, had staged London's official welcome of England's new king, James I, to his capital. And they would go on to stage official events, notably Lord Mayor's pageants for city authorities. The team behind the Roaring Girl somehow managed to be both counterculture and very mainstream indeed. I've had a complaint from one of my former students. This podcast, she says, is not digressive enough. By comparison with my classes, it sticks tediously to the topic. So here is a digression disguised as a transition from one creative industry, theater, to another, hack writing. You can imagine this, if you like, as the audio equivalent of a three-minute walk from the corner of White Cross and Fortune Streets to the corner of Four and Grub Streets. A peculiar linguistic usage has long intrigued me. I used to teach it as an example of metonymy, the rhetorical practice of substituting something associated with what you mean for what you actually mean. I call it geographical metonymy, though I'm sure academic linguists have a better technical term. Anyway, you use the name of a place as a substitute for the institution or activity located in that place. So you talk about the White House when you mean the presidency, or Hollywood when you mean the movie studios. London is particularly rich in geographical metonymy. Westminster, Whitehall, the West End, that's just the W's. My favorite is another W, 
A few years ago, when the BBC created a brilliant situation comedy about the peculiar corporate culture of the BBC, they called it W1A, after the postcode of Broadcasting House, the BBC's corporate headquarters. Geographical metonymy often survives the circumstances which defined it, so Fleet Street stood for the British press for decades after British newspapers left the real Fleet Street, and Grub Street, where we have arrived at last, outlived its origins for even longer. I should say that we have traveled in time as well as space. Grub Street was renamed in the 19th century and vanished beneath the Barbican in the 20th. But Grub Street was once a real place, running parallel to the southern half of Whitecross Street, one block to the east. In the late 1500s, when it first began to be home to writers and publishers, this was not a nice neighborhood. It was poor and inconveniently outside the city walls, whose gates closed at night. The neighbors were not ideal. It was within smelling distance of the refuse heaps of Moorfields and within hearing distance of the distressed cries of St. Mary Bethlehem, London's insane asylum, from which we get the word bedlam. But the radical Protestants who settled here valued seclusion and affordable rents over comfort and convenience. A typical example is John Fox, the author of the ferocious Book of Martyrs, who moved to Grub Street at the end of his life after he had somehow outlived all his aristocratic protectors. The connection with a literary culture of extreme dissent lasted for over a century. After the collapse of the Puritan regime in 1660, John Milton retreated to the shadows of Jewin Street just a block away to finish Paradise Lost. When Grub Street first began to be used metonymically, it was not a term of praise. From the start, it had connotations of contempt. As Pat Rogers, the great scholar of London's literary underworld, points out, the location was a gift to sneering critics. The writing produced in this edgy neighborhood was easy to taint with the stink of Moorfield garbage and the babbling of bedlam. At first, however, Grub Street did not refer to talentless literary careerism, but to dangerous religious extremism. In late 17th century London, as censorship relaxed and literacy spread, the kind of writing produced in Grub Street changed. A perfect index of this is Daniel Defoe, who was born around the corner in Fore Street in 1660 and probably died there too, 70 adventurous, chaotic, unbelievably productive years later. Defoe's family were tallow chandlers, but more significantly, they were dissenters. They seem to have recognized their son's verbal talents early since they sent him to a local academy to train as a Presbyterian minister. They planned for him to become one of the religious radicals associated with Grub Street. But Defoe was not John Fox. He had no religious vocation, and after some unsuccessful commercial ventures, he became something new, almost unprecedented, a professional writer producing pamphlets expressing Whig views on politics and economics for just about anyone who would pay him. This was dangerous business. As long as the Whigs were in power, Defoe was safe enough. But when the Tories took control in the reign of Queen Anne, he was convicted of seditious libel and spent time in the pillory. 
It was also financially insecure. Defoe spent much of his life avoiding the creditors who could send him to debtor's prison and did not always avoid them successfully. But along the way, he produced a series of lasting works, notably the first commercial novel in English, Robinson Crusoe, and a much darker, more amoral Maul than Mary Frith, Maul Flanders. To his political opponents, the Tory wits, Pope, Swift, and Arbuthnot, Defoe was the quintessential inhabitant of a transformed Grub Street. To them, he embodied the changing meaning of the term, from religious fanaticism to talentless glib servility. To them, it was more than coincidence that he was born, died, and was buried in the neighborhood. In the 18th century, Grub Street was both the real-life residence of many struggling writers and publishers. Johnson and Smollett are unusual in that they escaped to more comfortable surroundings, and a hideous hyperbolic myth, most famously explored in Pope's Dunciad and pictured in Hogarth's The Distressed Poet. I, too, will leave Grub Street behind with one final observation. The physical location of the place was crucial to its real but temporary importance to this particular creative industry. Its position on the edge of town made rents cheaper and escape from debtors and censors easier. As newspaper and magazine culture became more established in London, as journalism became a more respectable career, Fleet Street and Bloomsbury replaced Grub Street literally and metonymically. There's a lot more to say about the creative industries around White Cross Street, but that's enough for now. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear about London's first swimming pool since Roman times, become a Patreon subscriber and join us for a stroll down Alleyway 6. Next time, we'll meet some local brewers and pay special attention to Samuel Whitbread and the monster of Chiswell Street. This episode was researched, written, and presented by me, Alan Hertz. Side Streets is a Black Lab media production, and my producer and editor is Wilhelm Schenk.